Welcome back to Bible Time, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, in Jesus' name, please take this powerful verse, this raw reality that you want us to understand in the Word of God, Lord, and apply it to our lives. Give us understanding. Give us wisdom. Give me utterance and unction to preach this. Help me, Lord. Fill me with your Spirit. Help me to accurately represent you, Lord, as I bring your Word to these people here and those that will listen later, Father, to the recording. I pray, Lord God, that you would bless your Word and help it to go out in power, and Lord, that you would change lives. Help us to be obedient to you and follow you, and Lord, to be sanctified, holy, just like this text says, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, what does it mean to be sanctified holy? What is sanctification? What does it mean that the the very God of peace sanctify you holy? Holy, that means all the way through. That would mean totally. Now, there's a phrase out there called total sanctification that's a doctrinal statement by a major group of um, people that profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And whenever those people say total sanctification, what they usually mean is that there is some point in their life where they have some kind of experience, and that experience alters them so that they are now sinlessly perfect. Every one of those that I have ever met that holds to that doctrine, maybe you're out there and you hold to that doctrine and this does not apply to you, but everyone that I have met that holds to that doctrine is that I have ever met that holds to that doctrine, every one of them and there's been several, lives in open sin and rebellion to God and claims to be sinlessly perfect at the same time. Because their perfection, their total sanctification, their holy sanctified state that they feel that they've entered into because of an experience has no practical reality in their daily life. So instead, they just have their experience and then claim sanctification. I can't tell you how many times I've met somebody I can think of not too long ago meeting somebody with his cigarette in his hand and his long stringy hair and his tattoos and his eyes full of lust and perversion and his tattered clothes and his dirty unkept demeanor and his foul language who looked at me whenever I asked him are you born again he said I'm saved and I'm sanctified and he had some other thing he was I don't know satisfied who knows but he says I'm saved and I'm sanctified I've got the Holy Ghost I've been baptized in the Holy Ghost and I'm sanctified And then he took a big puff on his cigarette, blew it at me, and turned around and walked off because he didn't want to talk anymore about the Bible or have anything to do with this um, little Christian who'd come up to him and asked him if he was born again. So I ask you today to judge righteous judgment. Was that man truly sanctified? No, we've got a couple no votes. Would anybody think for a minute that maybe that man really was sanctified? Nobody's giving me any kind of indication that that man was sanctified. And I would say, you're right. I can remember another man I sat down next to on a bench. I was waiting at a salvage yard for a um, for one of the people to get there so that I could try and get a price on a part for a vehicle. And I was sitting there on the bench and an old man sat down next to me. And that old man with stringy long hair with a dirty mouth that he had just been cussing with, with his little cross necklace and his tattoos, sat there next to me and I talked to him about, have you ever been born again? And it turns out that not only did he believe that he was saved, but he also believed that he was sanctified and he believed that he was living in a state of sanctification. And then he proceeded to tell me that whenever you get saved, you get a new nature. And when you get that new nature, then you proceed on to another level of Christianity called sanctification, where you get filled or baptized with the Holy Ghost, whereupon you're sinlessly perfect. And therefore, you can do whatever you want. And that's like the train went off the bridge right there. Used a whole bunch of scripture, a whole bunch of Bible terms to justify his wicked lifestyle. I want you to know today that that is not biblical sanctification. It has nothing to do with biblical sanctification. And this idea of total sanctification is a scriptural concept 
if you keep it in the bounds of Scripture. But as far as the doctrine of total sanctification as it's generally taught and generally accepted and generally understood whenever people make a statement of total sanctification, it's nothing but total fallacy and falsehood, heresy and error. Now, sanctification, I've got a question for you here. Is sanctification a process... Or is it a position or is it a practical reality? There's the question for you today. Think about that for just a second. Is sanctification a process? Is it a position or is it a practical reality? Is sanctification a day-by-day process by which you become more and more holy throughout your life? Or is sanctification a position to be achieved that is as we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, so we are sanctified and therefore we can live however and still be sanctified? Or is or is sanctification a practice? practical reality that can actually affect your daily life without you having to do anything at all. All of those, uh, the answer to all of those questions is no, and the answer to all of those questions when put together in a rightly divided context and balanced by scriptures would be yes. So we need to look at the scriptures and get the balanced understanding of sanctification from the word of God. This is one of the most important important doctrines in all of the Bible for the believer. Next to salvation, the sanctification of the believer is the most important thing to be accomplished on the face of the earth. Now, evangelicals are quick to point out that the Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and that the reason that we're still alive on the face of this earth is to share the gospel with the lost. And while that is true in a practical sense. That is true in a commissioning sense that God has given the church the job of going into all the world and preaching the gospel. And it is true that God has given that purpose and that task to mankind, that uh, that task that has given, not just to mankind, to his church, that task that has been given to the church is not God's personal reason for you being alive on the face of this earth. Go to John chapter 17 real quick. I want to show you something here. Maybe it might blow some of your theology out of the water. That's good for us sometimes to let the Bible blow our theology out of the water and just get us back to having to read the Bible like little children all over again. Here in, in John chapter 17, Jesus said here, and to the Father, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. So while the evangelicals will say it's to win souls, the often it's the Presbyterian type of crowd. Some of them are evangelical too, but a lot of times it'll be the crowd that tends a lot stronger towards Calvinistic viewpoints that'll say, we're here for the glory of God. Well, that's all well and good too, but the glory of God, what does that mean for you on a practical daily basis. What is God's purpose in your life on a practical daily basis? Well, to glorify God. But how? Where does the rubber meet the road? It's easy to say glorify God. It's easy to say do all things for the glory of God. It's easy to say the chief end of man is to glorify God. That's easy to say, but what's the actual application? Where does this actually, um, where does the rubber meet the road? Where does this actually have an effect in my life? He says here in verse two, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life unto as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So there's salvation. Jesus Christ praying to the father for the salvation of the lost. Verse four, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So the glory of God is accomplished through finishing the work that God has given man to do. So now the evangelicals shout hooray and the hyper Calvinists that want to sit on their sanctified laurels through some providential predestined act of God and do nothing and take no responsibility say boo. But I'm going to tell you we're both going to be in for a little bit of a shock here. Both sides of that coin, both groups, if you keep going. He says, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee." 
For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now the Calvinist crowd can jump up and down and shout amen there. Verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And then that begs the question, how can we have all these crowds in the first place? And how can we have so many schisms in our churches and across doctrinal ideas throughout Christendom, so-called Christendom? I don't even like the word Christendom. Well, I was with them in the world. I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, I want you to, I want to jump down here. We're basically there. Um, verse 15, he says, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We're going to get to these verses later in the study. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. So here he's praying for the sanctification of the people that he saved, that they might glorify God as well. Without sanctification, God will not get glory from your life. But look at what he look at what he says. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me, on believe also on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory that thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Isn't that an amazing statement? Here, Jesus is not praying that they might be excellent soul winners. He's not praying that they might have superb doctrine. He's not praying that they might have the biggest seminaries. He's praying that they might be one. And then in verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. So the primary thing that he's praying for here is not for them to have ability in soul winning, or excellent doctrine, but for them to have unity through the truth of God's word, to be sanctified through the word of God and to be one. And then he says that they may be one and, and he goes on and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So this sanctifying work of God that makes them one through the word of God then is the power that gives the evangelicals what they need to convince the world of the of of their lost condition and the power of the gospel. This sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God is what gives those who are truly Christians, who would be more of the Calvinistic bent, the ability to bring glory to God. It's through this sanctifying work. And so you see that the different groups here, even in their different ideas and their different ideals, are brought together under one goal of God, that they might be one, sanctified, I in them, and thou in me and them to be made perfect in one that the world may know that thou hast sent me. He says in verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them." So here in this text, in the word of God, what we have here is the is everybody from the Calvinistic side and everybody from the more evangelistic side, and those two don't have to be exclusive. I've, I've known some Calvinistic Christians who are ex extremely soul winning. The most famous of all of, of all time would be Charles Spurgeon, who was extremely Calvinistic in his beliefs and his teachings, but was extremely evangelical. And there are many others that have been extremely so. I think of, and I may have gotten this wrong, but the Evangelical Free Churches of Scotland um, back in the day, which came out of a hyper-Calvinistic, sedentary group of people that believed that God was going to save, we was going to save, and we didn't have anything to do with it. But there were still people who believed in the predestination and foreordination of God that were extremely evangelical down throughout the ages, and there have been people of a more Arminian bent who believe it's more the responsibility of man and lean much more heavily that way 
who have been very evangelical and God has still used. And listen to me today. It's not so much your theology as it is your sanctification that God is after. And it's not so much your works like your soul winning, your evangelism that God's after, but your sanctification that God's after. And the call here that God is sending out to his church is a unity, not based on man's solidarity in humanism, but rather a unity based on the word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. To be sanctified is to be set apart and separated from one group unto another group or from one person unto another person. The idea of sanctification in the Bible is the same idea of that of the marriage. The idea of sanctification is like betrothal in the Bible, where a woman is taken and she is claimed by a man. Her her dowry is paid. The bride price is paid. It's the wedding documents are sealed and that woman is separated unto that man. And this is where we find ourselves in this church age that we are waiting on the Lord, the bridegroom to come back. And in the meantime, we are to be sanctified unto the bridegroom. As my pastor would say, how many of you think a woman should take an engagement ring from a man, say, yes, I'll marry you. And then whenever he goes off, turn around and start kissing on his best friend. You would be shocked and abhorred. Even the most, even the most wicked amongst people out there in the world, the most wicked groups of people still look down on people who are not faithful. To at least to some degree, even amongst bar running, flirting, wicked, carousing, pornography watching, um, drug using people, a woman who is not faithful to her man is looked down on. And a man who is not faithful to his woman is looked down on even when they're just shacking up and they haven't even married. Faithfulness is understood even by the world as a very necessary part of human relationships, even whenever they don't do it God's way and they're living in sin against the Almighty. Sanctification is like that betrothal where you're being separated from the world and separated to God. I want to look at three parts, past, present, and future, um, in a sense, of sanctification. I want to look at the beginning of sanctification. Where does sanctification start for the believer? Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is, again, one of the most important doctrines in all of God's word following salvation. If you might not know anything about God except that you're a sinner, Jesus died for you and was buried and rose again the third day, and you turn to God in faith and repentance, God the Holy Spirit doing that work in your heart that is necessary to show you these things, you don't even know the Holy Spirit's doing it. You don't even know the Holy Spirit is drawing and convincing and convicting. You don't even understand what's happening inside, but God can save you. Praise the Lord. And sanctification is something that you don't even have to understand, but God does in the life of true believers. And if sanctification's not happening, you're not a true believer. And we're going to see that today. Sanctification is, is a work of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Now, this is an amazing thought. How many of you have ever prayed for that lost loved one and said, God, please sanctify my uncle to salvation. Please sanctify my son to salvation. Please sanctify my daughter to salvation. We normally divorce the idea of sanctification from salvation. But the reality is that nobody ever got saved who God didn't sanctify to salvation. And what is that sanctification to salvation? He says that God has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of truth. This is God's part in salvation. You can go to Genesis chapter 24. Um, well, go ahead and go there real quick and we'll look at it. We're just going to reference a couple things here and get the idea. And then we're going to go to John chapter 6 next. Genesis chapter 24. 
Here in Genesis 24, Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And then the servant here went on and negotiated with Abraham and left to find a wife. And here we have Eleazar, a type of the Holy Spirit of God, Abraham, a type of God the Father, Isaac, a type of God the Son, and Rebekah, a type of the Bride, and therefore a type both individually and collectively of the church. So this type applies to the church as a whole, and this type applies to you as an individual if you are a born-again Christian. And there's Rebekah up there in a land that is not the promised land, in a family that was not favored by God, like the Gentiles who are grafted in, there's Rebecca up there, and the promised seed, Isaac, needs a bride. Just like the promised seed, David, would need a bride, or Jesus Christ would need a bride, and God would send the Holy Ghost into the world, like he did at Pentecost, to call out for him and sanctify to himself a bride. And here goes Eleazar to get the bride for the son Isaac. Verse 22, here he's met Rebecca, he's put her to the test, she's passed the test. She is the one that God has chosen. He knows that. The one that Abraham has um, already prophesied of for his son Isaac. And it said, and it came to pass as the camels had done drinking that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold and said, whose daughter art thou? At this point he doesn't even know her name. Now of course the Holy Ghost knows everything. Eleazar senses that this is the right girl. But he doesn't know whose daughter she is, he's not asking her because he doesn't believe she's the right one. He already put her to the test. He already knows that this is the one because he prayed and asked God to have her do what she did and she did. So he knows this is the right one. Now he is validating and verifying the facts that this is the one God has chosen for public record's sake. And so here he says, whose daughter art thou? She says, she's the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bare, which she bare unto Nahor. And he praises the Lord, but here he has chosen the daughter. And this is the first part of sanctification and the first part of salvation. I'm here to tell you today, until God the Holy Ghost comes by where you're at and chooses you, you will never choose God. People say, call on the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. And that is absolutely true. So why doesn't everybody do it? Because a lot of people out there have never had the Holy Spirit of God yet deal with them and draw them. I'll show you that from the scriptures. And still yet others have rejected the call whenever the call has come. So here in John chapter 6 and verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Here Jesus Christ brings in this concept of drawing. To draw something is to fasten onto it with rope or cords or chains or something of that nature or perhaps a um, like with a wagon there might be a whole yoke there might be a whole harness that's involved but to fasten on to something and to pull it out of the position it's in into another position so Jesus is here talking about God latching on to locking on to a lost man and pulling him out of the world to himself you say I don't like that you take it up with Jesus. Jesus is the one that preached it. No man will come unto me, he said. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You say, you sound like a Calvinist. Give me a minute. You might think I'm an Arminianist. I'm just trying to preach the Bible. I'm not trying to preach theological bents. I'm not trying to get in anybody's bandwagon here. We're just preaching the Bible. And the Bible says, no man can come to me except God, which is the Father, draw him. That's what Jesus Christ said. So here Eliezer went after Rebekah. The Holy Ghost goes after the lost man. Without this work of the Holy Spirit of God, no man anywhere would ever get saved. Now there's a crowd out here that says God is always drawing everybody all the time. God is always calling everybody all the time. And such a thing is not not sustainable in a scriptural view. Um, from the word of God. 
It says here to draw, or let's see, next verse 45, I already moved. John chapter 6, look at verse 45 there. He says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. So there, every, God does deal with everybody. But then he says, every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. And we'll see in other places that there's a difference between those that have been taught and those that have learned. And there is your difference between saved and lost. God said in his word that all shall be taught of God. So that shows you that all will be dealt with by the Holy Spirit of God. This also ties in with Romans chapter one, which says that they are without excuse because the invisible things of him are clearly taught being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God deals with every person that ever lives on the face of the earth. God, the Holy Spirit deals with them on some level. How much of a level it varies. Some people God barely deals with and they get saved. Other people God wrestles with them for years and years and years and they get saved. Other people God wrestles with them and they fight and they turn their back on God and he kills them. And these are mysteries and this is something you better be careful about getting real dogmatic about and you better just stick to the Bible. As soon as you think you've got it all figured out, you're going to be preaching heresy or error just that fast because this deals with God's ways and God's part and salvation. And I've got something really profound to share with you today. God's part in salvation is God's part. Really profound, really deep. God's part in salvation is God's business. And who hath known the mind of the Lord and who hath taught the Lord, who hath instructed the Lord? Listen, God's going to do what God's going to do. You do your best to understand God. You do what God tells you to do and you leave God's business to God to do God's business because God's going to do it God's way whether you agree with it or not. So it's best for you to stay humble and for me to stay humble and just recognize what the Bible says about what God does and then get busy doing what God tells us to do. So here this response here that some are taught, all are taught, some learn is based on their acceptance of the, of the word of God. Um, John chapter 6 again. Verse 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So we find again that it is the words of God that are connected directly to the spirit of God and that this operation of the drawing of God is through the word of God and that those that receive the word of God when they're taught the word of God are those that learn and that hear and that are saved and those that reject the word of God. Those that will not hear the word of God are those that do not learn when they're drawn, when they're dealt with by the Holy Ghost and they are lost. John chapter nine. Well, I don't have that reference written down. I'm not sure where I was going in John nine. Go to John 12. Go to John 12 and verse 32. I want to look at the drawing that Jesus Christ mentions here in verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up, said Jesus Christ, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now, all in your Bible means all unless God limits the all. Many theologians out there will say all doesn't always mean all. Well, that's very true. But all always means all in its context. If you say all the biscuits, it means every last single biscuit in the basket. Copy? Does that make sense? But if you say all food, it means all food. Whatever the context is determines what all means. And if you look at all, whenever it says, I w- if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. After talking about those that would not listen, he says the judgment of this world. And then he speaks of the earth. And then he says he will draw all men unto him means that God has made a promise that he will draw all men. Now you can can go off and try and make up your own theology if you want, or you can stick to the Bible. Jesus will draw all men. That's true. Now, all those out you, all you Arminians out there who've gone off the other deep end, and you're going to say God is always drawing all men. That is a lie. That's not supportable from scripture. 
There's nowhere in the Bible that you can support that God is always drawing all men or by saying that um, people are always drawn the same way or what the draw of God constitutes in one man's life. So you better stay humble about this thing. Recognize that the drawing is God's work. God will do his work and that God's work requires a response from you. And if you do not respond to God when God deals with you, you are not guaranteed any more dealings. God may leave you in your miry clay if whenever he comes and draws you, you resist and fight. He may leave you right there and he may never come back to deal with you again. You don't have any guarantee. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. So right here, what we're finding is that the Bible here actually splits hairs between just about every group and proves us all wrong in our extremes. And we need to get back to the Bible and we need to stick to the Bible and what the Bible actually says instead of going out and building extra biblical theologies after our own opinions based off of misinterpretations of scriptures out taken out of context. He says, I will draw all men unto me. You can argue with God about that if you like. We're moving on. John chapter 12 and verse 37. This is going to be your balancing side of this here in the scriptures. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Esaias the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Esaias said again, he hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their heart, that they should see with their eyes, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, nor be and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Esaias when he saw his glory and spake of him could not believe. Be very careful about telling sinners that whenever you call upon the Lord, you can be saved. Be very careful. There's truth in it and there's error in it. If you don't rightly divide the word of truth and keep it balanced, be very careful about telling sinners. You can only be saved when God draws you nowhere in the Bible. Are you told to instruct sinners to wait on God? You're instructed to tell them to call on the Lord. You're instructed to tell them to repent, but you're not instructed to tell them how God will respond to them other than what the Bible says. And God sometimes lets people call on the Lord a hundred times before they receive assurance in their heart of salvation. And what we've got going for evangelical Christianity in this nation is an abomination and an offense to God because some poor boy comes up and you tell him he's a sinner. He says, Oh, I don't want to be a sinner. I'm you're going to hell. I don't want to go to hell. You need to pray this prayer. Oh, I'll pray that prayer. And he prays the prayer and you say, now you called on the Lord. And the Lord said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now you're saved and you slap them on the back and they go away thinking, I don't think I'm saved. I don't really even know what I believe. I don't even really know who this Jesus is. I have some kind of vague, foggy understanding, but I really don't even know what just happened to me. And it's happening all over our nation because we're trying to slam dunk sinners into the kingdom instead of letting God do his part and doing our part, which is to preach the gospel and let God deal with them and to invite them, but not to draw them. We think you see, here's the problem. We think we got to draw people now. And we all move off of that. We think it's our job to grab them, haul them to the altar, get them to go through the motions, pray the prayer, dunk them in water, slap a sticker on them that says born again Christian, put them through Baptist training union or something of that nature, and then force feed them a bunch of our doctrines and make them march lockstep with the pastor the rest of their life to prove that they're saved. That ain't in the Bible. And we've got a whole, we've got an, we've got an epidemic. We have a pandemic of lost church members in this nation because of that kind of ignorance about the ways of God. On the flip side, a lot of our more Calvinistic friends will take people and say, you just got to wait on God to call you instead of preaching to them the gospel of Jesus Christ and praying for the power of God to fall and beseeching them to repent and call, in, and call on the name of the Lord. It's not your business to draw them and it's not your business to tell them they're not being drawn. It's your business to preach the gospel. How do we get off on this? Lord, help us today. It's truth. Wasn't where I was planning on going, but it's truth. Lord, I pray that you'd use it. 
So sanctification is a separation from the world unto self, and sanctification begins with God choosing a Christian to salvation, sanctifying them to the truth through the Spirit. What a big statement that is. Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. John 17, 17 through 19, we looked at, we ran over that, but we'll look at it again. Sanctify them through thy truth, Jesus says. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Sanctification is based on the word of God. All sanctification is based on the word of God, not signs, not wonders. It is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. That's absolutely evident in the Bible. But the Holy Spirit of God uses the word of God to sanctify people. That is also absolutely evident in the Bible. If somebody comes up to you and says you need to be sanctified and they want to lay hands on you and pray some kind of thing in weird languages that nobody on the earth even calls languages, run away. Get away from it. Get your Bible out. Get on your face. Read the Bible till you're soaked in the word of God and beg God to fill you with his Holy Ghost. And he said, how much more, if ye being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give the Holy Ghost to them that ask and get filled with the Holy Ghost? You don't need the signs. You don't need the wonders. You need the power of the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. One preacher said, get full of the Word of God and you'll get full of the Holy Ghost. That doesn't mean the Word of God is the Holy Ghost, but you can't have one without the other. Because the Holy Ghost is part of the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Word, and God the Holy Ghost. These three are one. 1 John 5, 7. And God the Word is the living Word who spoke the written Word and you can't separate the two. You cannot separate the two. If you try and treat the written word like it's not the living word, you're going to end up in heresy and vice versa. The just shall live by faith. Sanctification begins with God choosing someone to salvation and separating them in a spiritual level. Now, this is a mystery that has been forgotten, but used to be considered orthodox in all of our revival circles, especially back in 1742 and on through many of the great revivals. Understanding that God, it's like this. One preacher said it this way. It's like God looks down at a little sinner down there and he says, that one I'm going to save that man, and he marks a circle around him that the devil can't get through. He puts a wall around him, a wall and a hedge around him, and he begins to illuminate that man's mind, and he sends influences into his life, and he alters the man's direction to bring him supernaturally into divine appointments where he will hear the word that will sanctify him unto Christ for, to salvation. But the Holy Spirit of God separates him from the influences of the world, the influences of the devil, the influences of his sin. It makes his sin stink to him. It makes his liquor taste bad. It makes the pornography empty and dead. It makes everything just die in this world except Christ. So that in the eastern sky, the illumination of the Son of the, uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, begins to peek up on the horizon. The day star starts to dawn, and he starts walking towards that light. It's a work of God. That's the drawing of God. By the way, that's whenever that man, you got to understand this. If you get this, then all these other verses about they that, um, about falling away, all this kind of stuff suddenly makes sense because whenever God is drawing a sinner to himself, God sometimes will, sometimes he lets that sinner fight him off and he says, I will not always strive with man. Sometimes he doesn't let him fight him off. Sometimes he does. And if he lets that man fight him off and that man falls away, having been made partaker of the gospel in the, in that early sense of the sanctification that God has done, become a partaker of the Holy ghost, Holy spirit of God, convincing and drawing him. That's what that's talking about. It's not talking about the indwelling you get there. You get all kinds of other heresy that doesn't rightly divide. Anyway, that's another rabbit trail. This is good stuff. I'm telling you, this is key. I said at the start, this is the most important doctrine following salvation. In the whole Bible, what is sanctification? What does it mean? This separation unto God. So, in other words, there's a lot of rabbits to run, and we don't have time to run them all, so we've got to keep moving. So, um, first of all, you have that sanctification that begins with God choosing you, but sanctification continues when you choose God. Sanctification continues when you choose God, and it continues on through your Christian life when you choose God. You don't have to go back to Genesis, but in Genesis 24, 58, Rebecca said, I will go. 
There came a point where Rebecca had to make a decision. There came a point where Eleazar was ready to leave. There came a point where Eleazar wasn't going to wait any longer. He had already chosen Rebecca. He had already given her the earring and or the earrings, I can't remember, and he'd given her the two bracelets of 10 shekels weight. He'd already gone to her house. He'd already treated with her family. And there came a day where she was confronted with a decision and she had to choose. And by the way, salvation without a choice is not salvation. If you claim you're saved and you've never said, I will go, you've never come to God and chosen Christ, then you ain't saved. It's Bible. You will go to hell with your false doctrine thinking that you're predestined and that means you don't have to choose. Predestined means you better choose because God chose you, but God's not going to take you if you don't choose him too. You say, how can those two work together? I don't know, but they're both in the Bible. And I'm telling you, they're both there. And if you neglect one, you're in great danger on either side. If you think that you're the one that chooses God and he doesn't have to choose you, then you're in great danger because you're just going to go and, oh, I choose Jesus and then go off and live your life. Never having come under conviction, never having actually looked in the Bible to find out you're a sinner, never actually examining yourself to see if you're really in the faith, just making some kind of arbitrary choice at some random carnal church service, but God never dealt with you and you never went to the Bible and you never sought God's face and you never actually examined yourself, you're in great danger. Either extreme is danger zone. Do you hear me? Either extreme. we got to stick with the Bible. Sanctification is separation into God. When Rebecca said, I will go, that meant she would not stay. Does that make sense? She could not stay and go at the same time. When she said, I will go, she had to act on it, and she did. She got on her camel, and she went off across the desert. She took off with Eleazar. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Now, once she got on that camel, the bride price was paid. Get this. This will help you. This will help you. The bride price was paid. Eleazar was in charge, not Rebecca. This will help you today. You see, oh, they, here they go by a bar, and there's a cute-looking man standing there. He winks at Rebecca. Hey, Eliezer, hold up just a minute. I'm going to go have me a good time. Ain't happening. Eliezer was in charge. Now, Rebecca could scream. Rebecca could kick. Rebecca could rebel. She could jump off the camel and run the other day way. But Eliezer was the one that bought her. Eliezer was the one that was responsible for her. Eliezer was the earnest for her. And the Bible says you are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Spirit of God and that we have the earnest of the inheritance, the Holy Spirit of God. And when you choose God who chose you, the Holy Spirit of God moves in, you get on those camels, and there ain't no going back. There's no escape. You say, oh, she could have jumped down off the camels and Eliezer could have chased her. And who do you think would have won? Eliezer with the servants and the ten camels or little Rebecca running across the desert on her feet? Eliezer is going to win every time. And there's never been a soul saved that ever got away from Eliezer. Do you hear me today? There's been some that howled like a Mongol. And you think that's racist. It ain't. It's historical. Mongolian um, weddings back in the day, the bride would scream and howl as the whole time they were hauling her to the camel or the horse to send off to the bridegroom. It was part of their tradition. And there's been some Mongolian born-again believers they have screamed and howled their way to the bridegroom, fighting and bucking and getting butt whippings the whole way. But Eleazar always brings the bride in. And by the way, when he brings her in, he brings her in without spot and wrinkle. You say, how does that work? He be God. That's how that works. Your problem is you don't believe in God. You've got some kind of man-made religion and man-made salvation that depends on you, that starts with you and ends with you, and it ain't salvation. God's salvation starts with God, and it ends with God, and you get one chance. One chance in the whole thing. I will go. When you say that, when you say, yeah, God save me, and you really are, are honestly believing in your heart the Lord Jesus, and God saves you, it's too late to back up. There is no turning back. There's no other way you can go.
All this other stuff just doesn't listen. This just cuts all that junk out. All that other stuff is just a bunch of raw humanistic theories. So here, sanctification is a separation unto God. Sanctification begins with God choosing you, continues with you choosing God. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So as you're going along the way, it is the will of God for you to ride on your camel and be happy. It is the will of God for you to sit there with your bracelets and your earrings and do what Eliezer says and wear the adornments of a bride and act like a bride and have a joyful expectation of the bridegroom you are going to meet. It is not God's will for you to sit there longingly gazing at the bars as they go by and God will deal with you if you do. Amen? Pretty simple. Now, sanctification culminates comes to a completion with your glorification. Galatians 5, 5, quickly. Galatians 5 and verse 5, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. That means we haven't gotten the total fulfillment of righteousness. We are waiting for the hope of righteousness by faith. This idea of a total sanctification being a sinless perfection in this life where your flesh is now or has all sin eradicated from it is a heresy. It does not exist in the Word of God. Your flesh is your flesh. We through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We don't look like it yet. It's not finished yet. We doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure, who so committeth sin. Look at that right there in its context. These people claim they're saved and they just live however they want. He says they're lost as hell. It says there, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Verse 9, whosoever committeth sin, or verse 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil. Verse 9, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, etc. And you can look at that down there. We don't have time to dive into that right now. We've looked at it before. We'll look at it again. There's a lot there, but this is also by faith. So sanctification begins by God choosing us, and then sanctification is continued by us choosing God, and sanctification is culminated by God glorifying those who he has separated to himself and consummating the marriage with his own holy presence. We, When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Whenever they too become one flesh, the marriage is consummated. Whenever we see Christ, when we're in his presence and become one with Christ there in the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will be like him. We will be one with him. We will be unified with him for eternity. The sanctification will be culminated. It will be fulfilled in our glorification. So this sanctification holy, whenever he asks, whenever he says that we're to be sanctified holy and the very God of peace sanctify you holy, this means all the way through, every time, every place, any cost. That God would sanctify you wholly from the top to the bottom. Now, your flesh is still part of the package. But your flesh is still the flesh. Let's look at the triune aspect of sanctification here in the next part of the verse. We're to be sanctified. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's three parts to your body. Your spirit, your soul, and your body. Your spirit is dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2, in trespasses and sins. Romans tells us in the first five chapters, through many powerful scriptures, the book of Romans tells us that we, because Adam sinned, death passed on all men for that all have sinned. So there you are in your physical body with a soul, a mind, a will, and emotions, but a spiritually dead spirit. That's why Jesus said you must be born again in John chapter 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that is the water birth that he mentions. Except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The water birth is a flesh birth. The flesh is your mother's womb, your mother's body. It's not baptism or it wouldn't be flesh. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So when the spirit of God births a new man, that holy seed which is born of God cannot commit sin. By the way, 1 Peter 1 and verse 23 tells us that we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So now we find that pesky Bible getting right back into our theology all over again. Oh, how the world hates that. Oh, how the professors hate it. The the professors want theology that's extra biblical. They want to get outside the Bible because that gives them creative rights. And then they can copyright their works and what such by teaching extra biblical stuff. But no matter what you teach in the Bible, the Bible seems to always just jump right back into it and take all of the rights away from you to glorify yourself. Here we're born again by the word of God. And we're born again by the spirit of God. And if you're born of the spirit, then you're spirit. But if you're born again by the spirit, you're born again of the word. Are you seeing the connection today? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctified unto salvation in 2 Thessalonians by the spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 again, it says, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. The Spirit works with the Word of God. The Word of God works with the Spirit of God. The Word of God is quick. That means it's alive. The Spirit quickeneth, the Bible says. The, the, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. This, the, the, he says the flesh profiteth nothing. This, it is the Spirit that quickeneth. This is all tied together. The Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word work together. And if they're not working together, it's not the Spirit. Or it's not the right Spirit. Maybe a spirit. That's why John tells us, try the spirits, whether they be of God. So here we must be born again by the spirit of God through faith in the word of God. Our soul must be renewed by the word of God. Go to Romans chapter 12. Quickly today, Lord, help us. We try to keep moving here and cover the material. Romans chapter 12, the material God has for us. Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this renewing of the mind, the renewing of the soul of man, is a work that God undertakes in the life of a believer in a continual process of sanctification. We asked the question at the beginning, is it a process, a position, or a practical reality? and we're going to find that all three are true, rightly divided, once you put them within the bounds of Scripture. So here we find the process of sanctification, the continual working of God, as he says, this is the will of God that ye... um, Where was that verse? Lord, help me. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. And there it implies that part of the sanctifying work of God is you saying no to sin. So there's a process of sanctification, there's a responsibility of sanctification, there's a position of sanctification that the Holy Spirit of God sanctifies you before you're even saved. Isn't that mind-blowing? Boy, that just throws out a whole lot of false doctrine really fast. Bam! Just like that. If you just get the Bible out, it's amazing how the Bible will do that. Most people that believe false doctrine are betraying a neglect of the scriptures. That's really the the main part there. Some of them are malicious. Most of them just don't read their Bibles nearly enough. Most of us, I should say, when we believe false doctrine, because I'm just as susceptible. And anything that I believe in error is due to my failure to be in the Word of God as much as I should be. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 23, here he says in verse 22, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So this is the renewal of the soul by the word of God and through obedience to the word of God. He says back there in verse 20, you have not so learned Christ. There's that learning again. You can take that back to Jesus Christ talking about they shall all be taught of God. They that have heard and learned and talks about that and receiving his words. You're not of God because 
because you do not hear my words, he said to some of them. And that you put on the new man, Ephesians 4.24, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So there's your old man, new man, old nature, new nature. The body then is must also be restrained by God. Romans 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul said, I bring under my body and bring it into subjection, lest having preached to others, I myself should be cast away. So the body must also be brought under subjection and sanctification through the word of God. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. Go there quickly. Ephesians 3 and 16, that he would grant you, here's a prayer for them, that Christ would grant the church here, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. So there's the God part of sanctification. God's got to do it. Sanctification that depends on your discipline and your willpower is not sanctification at all. It's got to begin with God. But then look at what it says after he prays that they would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Verse 17, get this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen as yet. And where do we get that? The word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The evidence of things not seen as yet is the word of God that I trust and take and believe. And when I place my faith in the word of God, it becomes my evidence of things not yet seen. And that faith compels me to a sanctified life, a separated life, separated from the world unto God. That sanctification then comes through the operation of the spirit of God in verse 16 of Ephesians 3 and then it comes through faith my my responsibility to believe God and be in his word comes out in verse 17 Ephesians 6 and verse 18 (coughs) (coughs) nobody preaches this like an old Appalachian mountain preacher you find an old Appalachian Baptist preacher and you say, Baptists don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Go to the Appalachians and go up in the mountains and you'll find them there. You get an old Appalachian Baptist preacher, not just any of them, but one that believes this stuff and get him to preach or find a recording of him preaching on this uh, 518. And they'll teach you. You'll learn something. It says here, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. God wants us to be filled. And this ties in with the word here in our text, holy. Holy. That means all the way up. How many of you, when you buy a cup of a beverage, let's say you go and you get a soda pop, um, and you get that um, soda pop, and you buy your cup of soda pop, and they fill it up a third of the way. How many of you would be real happy with them? You'd probably go back and tell them, hey, can I get the rest of my soda pop? And a lot of Christians are walking around unfilled. You say, when you get the Spirit, you get the whole Spirit. The Spirit of God is God. He's not, he's not a resource that you can be part filled with. That's not true. He is God, but you can be part filled with Him because you ain't God. This is where that all breaks down. See, you think that God can't do what He says He does in His Bible. You think God's got to do it all with one shot at your command whenever you call on the Lord your way with your little pat answer prayer, your repeat after me prayer that you're going to get saved and sanctified. You see, it's not just those who believe in sinless perfection that have their fake sanctification. It's also those who have their (coughs) easy believism where you pray some kind of repeat after me prayer and then you demand of God that he save you and then you walk off and pretend like he did it when nothing has changed inside and claim to be sanctified when you have no power in you over sin, over the world, over the flesh and you go on disciplining yourself and doing everything in the power of your own will lost as a goose or maybe you are saved but you're in rebellion to God and you're acting like you're all right and you claim to be sanctified what a bunch of trash god tells us be filled with the holy spirit of god what does that mean what how can you feel well you're not it's not like a cup that's half full and half full no it's like a body soul and spirit just like the bible says spirit soul and body you're three parts your spirit when you're born again god moves in and you're indwelt and your spirit is filled with the holy ghost the moment you're saved god doesn't use be filled with the holy ghost that way 
He calls that the indwelling. But when you're saved, you have that mind, will, and emotions that need to be renewed. And that mind, will, and emotions that need to be renewed need to be totally, wholly sanctified from the world. And when they're sanctified, separated from the world, they need to be bound unto God. And then whenever God is the one who is filling your mind, your will, and your emotions and controlling them, you are filled with the Spirit. And that's what that means. And that can be backed up all over Scripture. We don't have time to get very deep and that we have talk, taught it before. We're already out of time. Galatians 5.16 says, now dealing with the body, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And that ties in with Romans 8, which says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You get filled with the Holy Ghost and then you obey and force your body to obey this Holy Spirit of God through what? The word of God. When you're walking in obedience to the word of God with the power of the Holy Spirit of God, you are walking in the spirit as a saved person. That's what it means. It's all it means and it's everything it means and it's glorious because then it's not you that's doing it. It's the spirit of God. Philippians 1.1 tells us that we're to be filled with all fruits of righteousness and, the, and that whole thing implies the fullness of the spirit. Now we're going to look at the last part here and then we'll be done and that is how long are you supposed to be sanctified holy? Are you supposed to be sanctified holy one time at church when everybody's laying hands on you so you can go watch your dirty movies the rest of the week and smoke it up and dope it up? <clears throat> Look at our text. He says here, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification, we asked, is it a process, a position, or a practical reality? It's all three. Sanctification happens at a point in time. You say, well, sanctification is a process. It's not a point in time. It's both. A process can't begin without a point in time. And there's got to be a point in time that a born-again Christian gets filled with the Holy Ghost for the first time. Just like there's got to be a point in time that someone gets born again for the first time. you got to come to that place where you surrender to the Lordship of Christ to be filled with the Spirit. you just got to understand you're a sinner and need saved and call on the Lord in true faith that He died and was buried and rose again to be saved. You don't have to know much. But to be filled with the Holy Ghost, you got to know that you need God to live his life through you. And you got to go to God for the power to do what God says to do in desperation to live what you know you should do. And when you do that, God fills you with the spirit. And there's a point in time that that will begin for a Christian that may be at the same time and place as salvation. And it may not be a bunch of people out here. You think that, the, that everybody's got to get what you got the way you got it. And most of the people that get that way don't got nothing anyway, just for the record. Now, <clears throat> to be preserved blameless, he says, under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is the work that is done through the sanctifying power of God, which begins with the work of the Holy Spirit, the operation of the Holy Spirit at a point in time after the Holy Spirit sanctifies you to salvation. You choose God and God begins to take you on those camels. And the day comes when you finally yield to Eleazar's leading in your life and you let him be the boss and you let him take over and you submit and he fills you with his Holy Spirit. God fills you. And now you're going along. You're preserved blameless by the power of God, but also through your own will, submitting itself to God's will. Both are true. The sovereign will of God has sovereignly declared that man must submit his own will to God in order to enjoy those privileges that God has sovereignly chosen to give to man. That's truth. It's Bible. Eleazar is taking Rebecca in. It's his job. He's going to finish the job. Here we're to be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Two references and we'll be done. Ephesians chapter 6 and then we're going to go to Jude. Some of you know right where that is, where we're going in Jude too. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians is somewhere in the New Testament there for those of you that are struggling like me. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 26. Wow, that one's not even in the Bible. 5.26, Ephesians 5.26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it. He says here that the church is subject unto Christ in verse 24. Verse 23, Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Of the body. 
Now apply this to your physical body as well. He's the Savior of the body. If Christ be in you, the Spirit that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. God will sanctify your flesh. He will bring it under subjection, but you've got to bind that sacrifice to the altar with your will. You've got to choose him and call on him to give you the power to keep under your body, but you're going to have to do it. Listen, if you think God's going to do it all, you're going to be a pitiful wreck of a Christian because you're going to come into temptation that's too big for you. And you're not going to be prepared to choose. You've got to choose. You've got a choice in this matter. And you've got to choose, but it's God who does it in God's power. Your choice is to call on the Lord for help. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The preserving blameless of the bride is the work of the Holy Spirit of God ordained by Christ and operated through his word. Functions through the use of his word, the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. People get on and say, oh, the church has got to go through the tribulation because the church has spot and wrinkle and God's got to purge the church and the fires of the tribulation. That's not in the Bible. It says that God makes the church without spot or wrinkle through the washing of water by the word. God uses the water of the word, not the fire of tribulation, to purify his church. You don't like that? I'm sorry, you're wrong. I've got Bible here I'm trying to share with you. This is the word of God, not opinion. Jude chapter 20, um, Jude verse 24. There is no chapter 24 in Jude either. Jude verse 24. We're going to close out right here. Jude verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. True understanding of biblical sanctification gives all the glory and honor and dominion and power to Christ. Christ is exalted. Christ is honored. Christ is glorified instead of this man-made sanctification on, and all the different variants of it. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would sanctify us holy. I pray that, you would, that we would submit ourselves to you, Lord, if, if any listens to this and they're lost. Lord, that they would recognize that if, you're, if their heart is pricking them, if you're dealing with them, that they just need to turn to you and ask you to do what only you can do, and that is to save them. And that you promise to save them, and when they put their faith in you, you will, and help them, Father, just to believe you, to call upon you in faith, Father, and be saved. And I pray for those, Lord, who are saved that listen to this, Father, that maybe are bucking and fighting, and they've been fighting on those camels. They've been bad-mouthing Eleazar and trying to get off at the bars, and it's been a rough life, Lord, because they've gotten a lot of whippings, and Eleazar keeps having to chase them all over the desert. Father, I pray that they just yield to you. I pray, Lord God, that you would come and my power and sanctify their soul to you father fill them with the holy spirit of god father so that they will want to follow you and want to obey you father god and find that rest and peace you said the god of peace sanctify you holy and lord we look forward today for that final consummation the glorification of our bodies where you bring us into your own presence and make us one with yourself and eradicate our old stinking sin natures father god and lord complete the work of sanctification that you begin before we were even saved. I thank you, Father, for your word, this precious book, the Bible. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to read it and heed it and follow it. Please help us, Lord, to drop our stupid doctrines, our theological strongholds that we've allowed Satan to build in our minds that are the doctrines and commandments of men and help us get back to this book. In Jesus' name, amen.